everyone, I'm Jenna. And I'm Mark. Thanks to you, all you listeners for all joining us for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales today. Jenna, we're getting into the botanical garden side. We of are. The it's been Zoo a while today. since we've had a plant person here with us. It has been. I'm excited to learn about it. I'm not someone who is very knowledgeable about plants, so I'm always excited to expand my knowledge, try and learn something new. I think we're going to do that today. We're being joined by Maraid Kennedy. She's the plant lab manager for our crew plant lab and a conservation horticulturalist. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. I know you're busy. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. I am very excited to talk about the plant side of the Cincinnati Botanical Garden. (laughs) I know. We don't always (laughs) highlight that quite as much, but people do come here for the flowers and the plants and to learn a lot. A lot more than I think we recognize because Mm -hmm. it is a gorgeous place like all year round, which is hard to find, I feel like. Yeah. Um, But you are the first guest that I've never met before. And so I'm really excited. I feel like Mark and I have more to learn than probably, well, there's always so much to learn, but this one I like, I have no basis. So I'm going to learn so much about just your job in general and what you do. Um, So we usually ask our guests kind of to tell us about just a little bit about yourself, like Mm -hmm. where you came from, if you did any schooling, and how you became interested in your job. Yeah. Um, So let's see. I have lived in Ohio my whole life. I really grew up in Hamilton. Um, I So when I first started college, I went to college for a biology degree. When I graduated high school, I, on a whim... I would say I went to Miami Hamilton. Okay. Uh, that's where I started. And before I started college, I never had a house plant. I never grew a plant. I had zero like knowledge about myself that I was even interested in this field. Uh, but on my very first day of college, I went in to their plant conservatory where they have a very large collection because I had never been in there before. And the manager at the time saw me and said, hey, you look like a hard worker. Do you want a job? He might have just been desperate for some (laughs) student workers. Uh, I'll never ask him that. I'll just believe he saw something good in me. Um, And like from that day on, when the plant bug bites you, you're done for. Like, I believe that. I have so many friends that suddenly now they have a million plants in their house. I'm like, yeah. how did this happen? Yeah. That was one of the plus sides of COVID. House plants, <laughs> gardening went up. Uh, but so after like a year and a half there, I worked in the conservatory. Um, I decided I wanted to transfer to UC. So at the time I started as like a biochem chemistry major, Ochem changed my mind. Uh, <laughs> I was feel a tough you on one. That. Yeah, <laughs> I was a tough one. I'm right yeah. there with you. <laughs> uh, I, it humbled me for sure. Uh, but when I started at UC, I had to leave my job uh, working with plants every day. And a couple months in, I hated it. Like, I was just not happy. Uh, so I reached out to the UC greenhouse manager, uh, Alexia Callahan, at the time. And I was like, what can I do? Can I just come in and help in any way? Um, And I wasn't able to do that on UC's campus, but that was actually her last day at Crew because she also was the greenhouse manager at the time. Oh. So she encouraged me to apply. I applied on a whim because I had two years of maintaining a larger greenhouse. 
And I started here back in 2019. Okay. Part-time. I was still going to school uh, as the greenhouse manager. And when I graduated with my degree in biology and a minor in horticulture, I was brought on full-time as the plant lab manager and conservation horticulturalist. So it's a long title, but <laughs> there's it's like the difference of working in a lab, like a very, as you would think of a lab, and then like digging your hands in dirt. Mm. So best of both worlds. I was going to say, so you get to do yeah. both. Yeah. That's awesome. It's really cool to hear your story too, because I think we're really used to, in the zoo world, we talk to guests who are like, oh, I always knew I wanted to be an animal keeper. I always had this itch, whatever. But it's really rewarding to speak to someone who kind of found that, who had to kind of mm-hmm. go out on their own, see what they were interested in, try a new couple of new things they mm-hmm. might not have been interested in, and then finally find their passion. All because they gave off a hard worker vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I don't know what it is about me, but <laughs> I, it just going outside of your comfort zone can do wonders because I, I've killed many a house plant, but <laughs> each time you got to learn from it. So, so what exactly is the plant lab manager? Like, what do you do? I, tell us about your job. Tell okay. us about the plant lab. scientists very very smart people that worked with plants and propagating them and endangered plants and i know we have this wonderful horticulture team but yeah. i i didn't know we had something literally labeled the plant labs so yeah <laughs> so um, embarrassed. I, I always say in the zoo there are plant people animal people and then the lab side yeah. which we're not that separated but even in the research we have uh plant and animal people i will never be an animal person plants are much less gross. <laughs> I say that with all the love in my heart towards animals, but... Hey, we need people interested in plants. For sure. Yep, <laughs> yep. So, in the plant lab, we focus on an XC2 collection. Uh, an XC2 means off-site. Uh, so, we work with endangered, mostly native species around the United States um, and several Ohio species, to try to preserve them in what is considered long-term storage because a lot of the plants we work with are considered exceptional. And they are exceptional because they're great. But in this definition, exceptional means that they're not able to be stored via like traditional seed banking methods. So with seed banking, I don't know how familiar you guys are, it's like a giant seed bank that holds all of our crop seeds and things like that. But not all plants make seeds. For example, there is like geographic separation. So if uh, for reproduction, some plants have a male plant and a female plant and they need to be able to uh, cross with each other. But if they're separated, like in a Hawaii, if they're separated on different islands, mm-hmm. they're not able to make seed because there's not ever going to be any cross-pollination, uh, which is not great, but not all hope is lost if they don't uh, produce seed or if their seed is not able to be seed banked. So seed banking is drying the seed down and storing it in a cold temperature for an extended period of time. So like oaks, for example, uh, they 
have a fatty acorn. It's very big. So the drying process is not able to dry it to have it survive long term. So it might survive or be viable for a few years, five years, 20 years. But what we do at Crew is try to preserve species for 100 plus years. Mm. So we do that in a couple ways. Uh, we have a, an in vitro collection. So in vitro means behind glass or in a test tube, essentially. Uh, so it's also called micropropagation. So just like you would propagate a home house plant by taking a little cutting, uh, it is essentially that on a much smaller scale. And we also do cryopreservation in our frozen garden. So uh, creating, following a protocol to submerge plants in liquid nitrogen and uh, store that tissue long-term for hundreds of years, in, in theory, we'll never make it there, like you and me. <laughs> but, uh, for the next generation. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, to be able to store and preserve that genetic material for plants that don't make seed or their seeds just aren't viable in regular methods. So So for a dummy like me, yeah. you're basically trying to find ways to preserve the plants without using seeds. So like tissues, roots, yeah. like stems, that kind of stuff. Yeah, essentially. even okay. embryos within seeds. If the plant makes a seed, but it can't be stored like an acorn, like uh, taking embryos out and storing that. Uh, and eventually, so part of my job as a conservation horticulturalist, uh, like our goal, at least in today's time, is to be able to propagate these plants clonally because we're just taking cuttings and uh, duplicating them. So if we have one test tube of a plant, we can make a hundred test tubes. Mm -hmm. uh, of this clone. So as a conservation horticulturalist, I, one of my jobs is to acclimatize them. Uh, so plants can come from cryoprep, like being preserved in liquid nitrogen to being grown on what I call a nutrient jello. So anything they could possibly need to grow. And then once they are big enough, we can divide them and when they start to root I will start to acclimatize them which essentially we have a plant in a test tube it has leaves up top roots below the nutrient jello if we took like this test tube is the perfect growing environment for the plant we want it as easy as possible to make this transition uh, so if we were trying to get it into soil, we can't just like, even if it's native in Ohio, we can't take it from the test tube and just chuck it outside uh, because that is just too, uh, too much of a difference in conditions. So it's extremely shocking mm -hmm. and would kill the plant like within a matter of minutes, especially during an Ohio winter. Right. Uh, it almost so, reminds me of like when you buy a fish at the, yeah, <laughs> the pet and you, I was, I mean, I don't really have experience myself, but you see, you have to acclimate them yeah. to the water and take that it slow is and test it first. And pretty much what it is. I, I like to say it's like dipping your toe in before cannonballing into the deep end. <laughs> uh, 
So, any questions so far? I can keep talking about acclimatization or the micropropagation aspect. So, what does that look like? So, you know, I mentioned it kind of reminds me of like acclimating the fish to the mm-hmm. right water. How do you acclimate these plants? You take them out of the test tube and then what? Like, what's the in between of the test tube and the soil outside? Yeah. So, going from a test tube, you gotta think. So, it's in a nutrient jello, very soft, it's able to put out roots easily, and it has everything it needs, and the humidity is close to 100%. Wow. So it's ideal growing conditions. Uh, so we're trying to mitigate the stress it experiences and just kind of harden it off. Uh, so the first step from going tube to soil, so that is the first stressor of just going from the jelly, the jello to soil is jarring because soil has a different texture. It's not, uh, especially like a potting soil, it doesn't have a lot of available nutrients right off the bat. Um, So you remove the plant from the test tube, you make sure all of that gelatin is off, and you pot it up like a regular house plant. So because they're so small, I use like a two inch by two inch pot. Uh, And depending on the plant, I alter the soil ratio of amendments. So like like you would a house plant, uh, there's regular potting soil and then like a rockier soil for a succulent or a cactus. Um, The only difference is in this step, we want to keep the humidity high. Uh, so after we got it potted up, you kind of got to do it quickly so it doesn't stress the plant out too much. We put the pot into what we have called a phyta box, which is essentially a Tupperware container that is clear. (laughs) Uh, it seals around the sides and I like to have holes in the bottom of the box. So like water can drain out. So nothing is rotting but that keeps the humidity a step lower than the 100% because it's it's not a fully sealed container, but that is where we start. So it's just a little bit less and watering it when it dries out and so on and so forth. And then after a couple weeks in this container, if it's still growing, still alive, we'll start to step it down again. So. I have a phyta box with holes in it that I put in with a hot nail. Uh, just doing, making the best out of what we have uh, rather than buying like a whole separate container. Uh, we just start to step down, decrease the humidity again, keep watering it, and eventually, and by eventually, I mean over the course of probably six to 10 weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm glad you said that okay. because I yeah, went out of it, this. It, was it is. Long. A labor of love, uh, to say the least, just depending on how it reacts each step, because not all plants uh, survive this process as easily as others. Um, But eventually, we will be able to remove the lid entirely, so it is just existing in open air. I have like a, a whole shelving unit of tiny plants in boxes like this that I'm working towards uh, getting them into the greenhouse situation, into the greenhouse. So once they are able to survive like open air in the lab, 
it becomes then moving them into the greenhouse, which is a whole new set of stressors. So, like, in the greenhouse, you have things like uh, pests, for example. We are constantly trying to contain, like, mealybugs or things like that that you can get on regular houseplants. But if you're taking such a small plant that doesn't really have any uh, defenses built up or, like, it's just so small, it's very... Uh, very fragile. Yeah, yeah, susceptible to things. So I bring them into the greenhouse, and I kind of quarantine them just to try to keep them away from everybody. And if they're still going, I'll repot them so they're in a little bit bigger pot. they got a little bit more room to grow, and it's just ever so slightly going down those stair steps until they are finally big enough to be planted outside. Or, uh, with a lot of our species, we have like our associate, associates come up and uh, take plants back. So for example, we work with a, an endangered Kentucky clover uh, that existed in two populations. Uh, and it's not native in Ohio, but uh, our associate from Kentucky comes up to get our, 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 they're in four inch by four inch pots that started from a test tube uh, and takes them back down to Kentucky to find uh, a more suitable area for their supplemental population. Mm. So the goal is outplanting or um, for example, we work with uh, a Floridian pawpaw. So we have pawpaws here. Uh, have you ever heard of a pawpaw? I have. I've heard of it. Good. Beautiful. I'm going to be honest, I didn't know we had them in Kentucky, but I've heard of them. <laughs> no, we have them in Ohio. Yeah, he lives in Kentucky. I love it. I'm so, one of those weird yeah. ones that live in Kentucky. Yeah. It's all right. <laughs> let it slide. Uh, but the species from Florida is just ever so slightly different. It cannot grow here, even though we have pawpaws here. Um, and through the acclimatization process, we realized that they don't even survive well in our greenhouse. So we've done the whole acclimatization process, but we get stuck at transitioning them into the greenhouse. So what we have done in the last few years is bare root them in a much smaller way back down to uh, Florida so they can continue that process to eventually outplant them. Wow, and what they've had success down there? Yeah. Yeah, so like when I ship out our plants, they're under three inches tall. They have roots, uh, but they're just so small. And that is the part of the process that we can't facilitate. But once they get down to Florida, they have more ideal conditions, like uh, consistently, and they can grow them until they're big enough to go outside. What is the reason they need your help to begin with? Why can't they do the propagating and starting them off as teeny tiny pawpaws. <laughs> not, uh, not everywhere has a lab like we do. Wow. So, uh, I mean, that's just crazy to me that people from Florida are trying to save plants, but they have to send them here. Yeah. And that's what uh, happens with a lot of our species because like, you need a lot of uh, specific technology to make this uh, feasible. Okay. So we work in a sterile laminar flow hood because... The nutrient jello 
is the perfect environment to grow a plant, but it is also the perfect environment to grow anything else. Wow. And humans are icky, uh, respectfully. <laughs> Just like any contamination can grow, uh, fungus, bacterial infections. So like, if you're sick, do you have to be really careful? Like some keepers have to around animals that can, do you have to worry about any of that? So, I mean, no, it's not that, probably the same bacteria, but does it make a difference if you're healthy versus? Uh, not in the same way okay. uh, for an animal because in the flow hood, there's a, like a continuous flow of air keeping like, as long as I'm not like breathing into a test tube, and I'm following sterile technique, which is a whole can of worms. Uh, I don't think I want to. I would want to do that. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. It, it's like surgery, except it's a plant rather than an animal. But as long as you're following that, you should be good. But if you're really worried, like if you're coughing or anything, pop a mask on. Mm. So. So how long does the process take from gelatin roots? In the test tube to you're actually planting it outside somewhere. Oh. Are we talking like a year? Are we talking multiple years? Like uh, It depends on what we're able to maintain. So sometimes not all of our plants need to be acclimatized or like there isn't like a project going on that can... Mm. Let me think. So not every plant has somebody who is working on it that we can like send these plants out to. And like since we're not working with exclusively Ohio natives, there's no point to acclimatize them or there's no need to acclimatize them. Uh, so, but the great thing with tissue culture, it's like repotting a plant. So when a plant is in culture, we can maintain a stock culture in theory forever. So uh, just like nutrient jello, eventually after like six to eight weeks, the plant will have used up all of those nutrients. And uh, even if it put out roots or if it didn't root at all, and it's still just a little cutting, we can take it out of that test tube, trim it up a little bit, make it all nice and pretty, put it into a new test tube and we're just maintaining that clonal stock uh, mm -hmm. by transferring it, just like repotting a plant. So you don't have to acclimatize them and that helps because we're working with limited space and especially since our projects are focusing on oaks, uh, having a tissue culture collection allows us to have so many more species without needing the space for mm. 300 oak trees uh, because like 300 test tubes takes up maybe the size of a card table. Yeah, that's another thing I was going to ask is how many, how many plants do you have growing at any given time? Like, species or tubes? Tubes, both I guess. Both. Both. I want to know species. <laughs> species Earlier. would be... Because we have some that are cryopreserved, some that are in vitro, or both. I'm not sure about the number of species. And tubes, the last time we counted, it was over a thousand. Wow. Wow. Don't and they're all at different stages, sort of? Uh, because they're each, different species, too. Yeah. yeah. So the nutrient jello, we have like a little recipe box. Uh, 
some plants get different growth regulators or like sugar content, things like wow. that. Uh, so they each get their own, uh, not, we make racks of media to be able to put the plants on, but some plants grow best on different basil medias. Um, but yeah, it's a lot and not all plants, uh, have to be transferred at the same rate. Uh, so like some plants can need to be transferred like four weeks or else they'll start to decline. And then some plants will go three months, a year. And how do you know? You just watch them and you're like, yeah, just see how just they're trial doing. And error, basically. Trial like, and error and just, uh, keeping an eye on them because a plant will tell you what it needs. What, how do they tell you? Because I'm really good at killing plants. I know how to like read animal behavior, you know, to some extent and be able to tell if an animal is off, but like, what are you looking for in these plants? What would be a sign that it's declining? Okay. So this is, this goes for house plants too. They, they aren't going to say like, Hey, please water me. Uh, but there's indicators of nutrient deficiency like yellowing leaves, browning leaves. What if your plants don't even have leaves yet? How can oh. you tell? There's a whole, are you thinking just like a stem? Yeah. Uh, if a bud is dying, okay. that tells you something. Or if it's just not growing at all. Uh, like there's just, it's just. Do you measure them and like see how tall they are each day? Or do you oh. just like eyeball it? Or? For a thousand two. No, well that's, <laughs> not, that's what I'm just like in awe right now. I don't understand. Do you, do you get eyes on all of them every day though? Or like at least once a week or. So the way we do it, we have like our people in our lab that each have their own like specific plant, not okay. just plant, but. So like for myself, I work with a Northern monk's hood. I work with that Kentucky clover and just kind of bop around between other species. Uh, we have a, a doctoral student, a PhD student who his focus is fully on oaks. Okay. Megan work or our conservation scientist, I'm not sure her actual job title, uh, Megan, Dr. Megan Philpot works on Hawaiian species. Uh, and then Valerie works on like a Florida Zisiphus. But we also have volunteers wow. that come in and help us maintain these thousands of transfers. Uh, so we have Wednesdays are our busy days. And we have a retired geologist and a, uh, a retired microbiologist, and we actually, our former plant lab manager comes in. So it's just like maintaining a garden, it's a team effort. Okay. It's always just conquer, conquer, divide and conquer. There it is. So like when you come in each morning, what does your day look like? Like how do you decide what to do? Or just ex like explain to somebody who has literally no idea uh, like, what do you do? And you're, you're the manager. So do you manage all these people that are working there also, or are you overseeing their projects or is it? it it's a lot of things. Okay. I, I wear many hats throughout the day because I am in the greenhouse and in the lab. Uh, so I either work on when I start the day, I have a schedule of when my plants need to be transferred because like some like to be transferred on 10 weeks, some like 12, and I have that mapped out. So on a week that I have to do transfers, 
that's going to take a lot of time. That's going to be a lot of my week because it's a lot of plants. Mm -hmm. But on weeks that I don't have to do that, since it's not every daycare, every week I'll take a little bit, uh, some data on my species for the projects we're working on. Uh, but I also set up the day so people are able to do their own projects. So uh, media getting made, if anything needs, uh, like, what do I do each day? Like, I, uh, if plants need to be acclimatized, I get that uh, all set up and ready to go. Uh, and so like I, literally putting the soil in the little teeny tiny pots and like yeah. filling all of those and yep. just like a lot of hands-on work. Yeah. Or like just making sure we have quote unquote sterile soil. So to make sure our soil isn't growing anything else because there's a lot of miscellaneous plants, fungus that can get into soil. We have to sterilize that by, uh, essentially pressure cooking it okay so everything else is dead and it's not a sterile environment that the plant is going into but it's the safest environment to keep that plant alive um does that deplete the nutrients as well or are the nutrients able to stay in the soil so that is a deep subject Uh soil (laughs) science is spectacular but above my pay grade uh So potting soil and ground soil are just a little different. Potting soil is, we use a peat base. Uh, So if we added organic matter, like a pine bark, that would eventually break down and supply nutrients. But really, it's not adding much. So that is when like fertilizers come in or adding organic matter. Uh, But outside that is where you get a lot of your nutrients Mm -hmm. um, that are just in the soil by nature. So technically a potting soil is a soilless media. Oh. Because there's no actual soil in it. This is definitely above my (laughs) favorite. Yeah, that is a can of worms. But very interesting. But even though, so you are sterilizing it, but it still has what the plants need. Yeah, so it's able to hold water. It's able to hold nutrients if uh, we add them via fertilizer. Uh, And it is able to support the roots and make contact with the roots. So the roots are able to take up both the nutrients and the water. Okay. Yeah. Man, I feel like I know nothing. (laughs) No, don't. I promise. In my opinion, I think... Everybody can grow a plant. Everybody is able to. You just have to figure out how it works for you, how you understand it, because nobody knows everything about plants. Uh, so you just got to find your little your little interest uh, and just what works for you. Like personally, for myself, I have a lot of house plants, but I will not ever buy an orchid to live in my apartment. I have tried it, and I have killed it several times. <laughs> and those are super hard. <laughs> They're just finicky. I And I know several people that can keep hundreds of orchids alive. I can grow them in the greenhouse just fine. <laughs> but as soon as we get into my apartment, it is just not... It, orchids don't work for me. So nobody has a black thumb. You just got to figure it out. You just got to find your niche, right? Yeah. 
You mentioned the Kentucky Clover that you worked with. Is that running buffalo clover? So there is three types of clover that are pretty common around, well, not common. And there's running buffalo clover, buffalo clover, and then this is just a Kentucky clover. So they're all related. Okay. They're all trifolium species. But there's uh, running buffalo clover would be trifolium stoliniferum because it runs, it spreads like that. Uh, then there's Trifolium reflexum, but this one is just ever so different enough to be considered its own species. It is Trifolium kentuckiense. Okay. Yeah. So we do have running buffalo clover in our front beds that started in test tubes at one point. Very cool. That is cool. I've, this is completely not something I expect you to know, but I'm very interested in clover becoming like the new grass. Mm-hmm. Do you, how do you feel about that? Do you know much about that? Like. There's kind of this idea, and I think it's more in other countries, mm-hmm. where instead of planting grass, which basically provides nothing for pollinators or mm-hmm. animals, or and we have to cut it and all of that, like there's the idea of planting clover in your mm-hmm. yards and letting it kind of just take over, and then it has you know the natural flowers and can pol- or like yeah. provide food for pollinators. Have you heard much about that? Do you like that idea? I really want to do it here at the zoo in different animal areas. Yeah, I think it'd be so neat. So, in my opinion. Turf grass, not a fan. Uh, Overall, it doesn't really serve a purpose other than looking pretty. Right, people think it looks nice. It does not look nice, in my opinion. opinion. However, it depends on what you plan to use the area for because you want it to benefit the environment, but you also want it to be usable for you. So, like, at the zoo, we try to make our enclosures look as close to the natural habitat as possible, things like that. And clover, it would be great for a lawn. Uh, But an even better idea is uh, working towards cultivating a prairie. Or, because you can, once you get enough, like, native grasses planted and things like that, and you just let it go. It can be registered as a prairie, so your neighbors can't tell you to mow it down. It is not as pretty as clover Mm -hmm. to some people, or as people think grass is pretty, uh, turf grass, but it is much more beneficial to wildlife, insects, birds, small animals. I've never heard that one, but I love it. A prairie yard. That is a my prairie goal. yard. I like yeah. it. I yeah. like it. Just serves the interest too of just keeping native species around, mm-hmm. right? Like the native species are what's going to help out the pollinators, the bugs, mm-hmm. the birds, everything else more. So I like that. Yeah. Sorry, that was a side <laughs> sidebar. <laughs> but we were talking about clover, and I'm so interested in that. So um, you didn't know the exact number of species, but you each kind of have a handful of species mm-hmm. that you work on, and that's probably a lot more like doable to focus Mm -hmm. when you aren't all but do you like have to know a little bit about everyone so that you can help out or is it basically you can kind of focus on your own and have your own project yeah so we all work we're all plant people Mm -hmm. I would hope in the lab uh so we if somebody is sick during a week that a plant needs transferred we take a lot of data on like what is going on or like where in this uh, process is this plant. And 
like what media it goes on, uh, if it uh, is rooting, what rooting media it needs to go on. Uh, so even if we know nothing about the plant, we're able to look back at everybody's notes over the years um, and we're able to tell what needs to be done okay. still. So even if everybody in our lab no longer worked here, we could get a whole new team that could come in and pick up where we left okay. off. Hmm. Uh, but since we're all plant people, we all get a little curious and we uh, learn about the species as we work with them or as like we receive them in and like initiate them into culture. Okay. That's interesting because we, we kind of have the same sort of yeah. like thought process and concepts with the animal and our animals in our care too, right? It's like you don't want the animals or in this case the plant life to suffer and have to take mm-hmm. a step back in their care just because a keeper is out sick or mm-hmm. decides to move on and go to someplace new. So <laughs> that's really interesting because I don't necessarily think about it. And I'm obviously biased towards animals. No disrespect. <laughs> it's but okay. I obviously don't think about it in this same way with plants, but it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. Um just like there's just not many there's a lot more similarities between plant and animal care than meets the eye yeah I'm because that today. that's what i'm learning <laughs> like, <laughs> like just in a broad scheme plants need food plants need water so do animals i think <laughs> they can tell you when they aren't doing great yeah it's just hard for me to tell yeah. <laughs> it's just different different ways of communicating what they need so it's very cool. So as a conservation horticulturist, like that is because you are propagating these species, but is there something else or is, is that like a different part than your job as a plant manager or is that the same thing? Oh, good question. I, so the conservation horticulturalist part, uh, like the definition of that term, it's kind of a newer term, but I think it will become very, uh, it's an up and coming field. Okay. It takes the specialized skills of like cultivating a plant. So like what horticulture does, uh, all of those skills and applies them to rare and endangered species. So by technicality, my job as the plant lab manager doubles because I, it is micro propagation. However, the conservation horticulturalist part is using the horticulture skills in the acclimatization process. Okay. Mm. But in my opinion, it's, it's both. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it does sound like you get a little bit of the both. Like you live in both worlds a little bit. Like you do some mm-hmm. lab work, but you also do a little bit of field work and you're kind of in the mm-hmm. greenhouse getting your hands dirty too. Yeah. Do you have a preference over one or the other? <sighs> does one suit you more? Oh, good question. I don't Oh, it's going to be greenhouse. I know that. <laughs> I don't want to admit that, but there is nothing like getting your hands dirty and just uh, helping the plant find its way to grow or just how it grows best. Um, my absolute favorite. So greenhouse does take uh, preference over the lab, but I like the crossover. So another... Uh, the wild monkshood, the oh wait, hold on. The northern monkshood that I work with, uh, 
It grows in a very specific microclimate. And so similar to the previous species we've talked about, we've hit a point where in the acclimatization process, we've kind of hit a wall. And we believe that is because of how specific their growing conditions are out in the wild. So they grow on very moist cliff faces. Uh, and there is a running stream that causes like uh, cool, cool air to cool the soil about 15 degrees cooler than the ambient temperature. Wow. So what I'm in the midst of is doing a soil chilling experiment because we're trying to mimic this natural environment as much as possible so in the lab, we actually just got this set up, uh, we have, it's an acclimatization experiment where it came from a test tube, but now there is a control terrarium and a chilled terrarium. So we got little pots buried in sand with an aquarium chiller circling through it to cool the sand about 15 yeah, 15 degrees lower than our lab temperature. Wow. To see how that impacts how they're growing outside of a test tube. So it's kind of just absolute crossover. Yeah, like where lab meets the dirt, right? Mm -hmm. like <laughs> and just seeing the process, uh, because the plants that I'm talking about, I was there when we initiated them into culture. So we received cuttings from uh, the wild and we got them into test tubes. We kept them up for this long. They rooted, I acclimatized them, and now I'm able to do this kind of experiment, like just start to finish. It's just such a fulfilling process. So have they, you said you acclimatized them. What are they currently in if, and they're surviving without this 15 degree cooler? Or what are they currently, how are they surviving right now? So, until um, you know if this cooling method works. So the, how the process has gone uh, is we'll get to a step in acclimatization where they're, they're stable uh, and they're surviving. And then at a point, a lot of times during the summer, they'll just start to rapidly decline. Oh, like okay. we're not able to get them into the greenhouse um, or like every once in a while we'll have one that can get into the greenhouse or one we had one a couple years ago that we were able to get outside and send back but it's like just we hit a wall it's just they tend to decline at a certain point in the process so we're trying to like circumnavigate that okay. point mm. this it's, is such a long game i would not have the patience for this like you don't see your results for weeks yeah. or like years at a time yeah, that's amazing. I mean, but it's just like the old gardening saying, you don't plant a tree for yourself. Yeah. You plant it for later on down the line. So even though the results aren't immediate or like sometimes plants die, like you just keep trying until you figure out what works for the plant and what works for you or the lab to be able to maintain. That's amazing. I'm, I'm very impressed by the work you guys do. <laughs> Definitely. Also, just, you know, 
as I, you've told us so much and I'm still like, I just don't really understand. <laughs> this is what happens whenever we talk to crew people. <laughs> you lab people are so smart and doing things that my brain doesn't, doesn't work that way. Um, is there anything else about your job or about any of the specific plants you work with that you want to tell us about? Oh, I, I, I covered a lot of bases. I talked pretty fast there. <laughs> so I, I think covered a lot of it so awesome. i think we learned a lot today for yes sure. i know i'm like for sure trying to wrap my my mind around it well do you have trivia to i do have trivia marie if you're up for it oh yeah. how could i say no <laughs> it's obviously plant life trivia today okay with the plant lab manager so it's a little bit of everything there's i i'm not quite uh as up with the times as far as the test tubes and uh that in XC2 versus in vitro, like I didn't have any of that in the in the trivia for today. That's so okay. It's a little more basic. But first question we got though: the botanical gardens here are very, I would say, famous, especially on social media for our tulips. Our tulips are very impressive in the spring. Our horticulture team knocks it out of the park every year. It seems like. So first question is about tulips. How many registered tulip varieties are there? Boy. You have any guesses? I'm sure Jenna's I'm sure Jenna's gonna be on top of this one. (laughs) (laughs) I always mess up numbers. I'm so bad at this. Can I get like a a number of digits we have going? Four digits. Oh my gosh, I would have guessed two. (laughs) Not two. It had to be high. I'll go with what? Twenty five hundred. Twenty five hundred? All right, Right? Jenna. Do you have a guess? Wait, here at the zoo or overall? Ever? No, overall, not at the zoo. Okay, overall. Just variations of tulips. Yeah. Um, seventeen hundred. So Marade's closer here. It's three thousand, just over three thousand registered varieties. Wow. Yeah. I don't understand. Plants are plants. insane. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's red ones. It's, there's striped ones. It's <laughs> kind of like a dog breed. Yeah. So. Varieties, cultivars, it's like a pug versus a golden retriever. Yeah, there's yeah, there's so much. It changes so yeah. much. We yeah. need to have more. You should talk to Paul. He he knows all of the tulip varieties. Oh yeah, we should, here. especially with our, our yeah, tulips, with tulips coming here up. Yeah, in a couple months, I know. Yes. I always love seeing our tulips when they come into mm-hmm, bloom. Me too. Alright, next question we got is about one of my favorite trees, the ginkgo biloba. So ginkgo you like those smelly they do have a certain scent to them but oh yeah they're so pretty so the ginkgo is one of the oldest known living tree species how far back does it go in the fossil record you know i history i i can see the phylogenetic tree but time is an enigma (laughs) okay i want to guess i'm gonna be so wrong 38 million? I don't know, time. 38 million years? Jenna, you have a guess? I don't know when di- when were dinosaurs. I was going to say the Triassic. <laughs> Is that a good guess? The dinosaurs were like Miocene? 75 million, right? I, I think 75 <laughs> this million years ago. This is kind of shameful. So, they are really old. They're in gymnosperm. She's racking her brain through yeah. the file of the genetic tree right yeah, now. Yeah, I think, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna. I'll stick with my answer. Okay, right. Jenna, you have a guess. 
What's the question? <laughs> How far back in the fossil records do ginkgo biloba's go? Do, are you asking for years? Yeah, like, how many years? How, how many, many years? At ago? least yeah. seven. At least seven, <laughs> at least at least seven, seven years, years ago. A <laughs> hundred million years ago. You guys are both short. It's about two hundred and fifty million years ago That's in the fossil of, record. Wow, Shameful. I think that is the Triassic. He's, no. I'm gonna look that up. No, she's <laughs> like, no, absolutely not. I feel okay. This is yeah. We need a timeline. Plant there. evolution <laughs> is amazing. A little outside of my oh my gosh, um, so expertise, <laughs> but very fascinating. No, that just astounded me that these things are older than dinosaurs. Is crazy to me, but I mean that makes sense. There were plants before mm-hmm. living. I mean, they're living before. Yeah. Anyways, I'm I mean, the, I, I knew there were like plants before dinosaurs, right? But it was like that there's still a species around, oh, around back okay. then. Yes, so yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, I need to and look And one of the it. things, this is just a sidebar, that I love about ginkgos. Ginkgos are, are one of my favorite, but be, they're, again, like one of the oldest, oldest species that is still around today. And there are so many cultivars that we created, like... Even on zoo grounds, we have a troll, dwarf. Oh, ginkgo. like we as in the Cincinnati yeah. Zoo? No, as, oh. as, oh. as we humans. as in humans. humans. Oh, okay. And we have uh, like controlled the genetics to get these ideal characteristics of an ancient tree. I've never thought about it like that, yeah. but that's very true. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Like this what thing makes was around. people decide to do that? Like, what are like? Oh, it depends on what your goal is. Like it. So horticultural varieties, a troll ginkgo can take up a lot less space. Okay. Uh, it's can fit. It's just an interesting tree to fit whatever space. Um, there's variegated uh, cultivars and things like that. It just depends on what you want. Okay. Or if there's other traits like crops, like if a plant is producing more fruit or so on and so forth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which makes total sense, but I'm just like, I wonder who thought, like, I want my ginkgo tree to look more like that one and that one put together, you know? Yeah. Like, it's funny that someone, like, took the time to do that. To yeah. I know. It is interesting, though, that these plants have been around way longer than us, but we're kind of changing their yep. genetics, and they're probably going to be long around after us as well. <laughs> it's a very so. human characteristic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question. Just speaks to the variety of plants. The first part of the question was just astounding to me to find out, but... Out of the estimated 80,000 species of edible plants, that was insane to me that there's even 80,000 edible plant species, humans use 30 plant species. Out of 80,000, we use 30 plants to make up what percent of human food? So there's 80,000 plants we can eat out there, but we only use 30 of them for what percent of our food? Okay, when you say we can eat, meaning they're not toxic... And we just won't die if we eat them, or we eat regularly. Like, we would want to eat them, or we just won't die if we eat them. <laughs> we would want to eat them okay. in different parts of the world. Not necessarily here, but throughout the world. Okay, what was the question? <laughs> Wait, so we regularly eat 30 species. 30 species. Around the world. Yeah. Thirty, Only 30. There only are very 30. few. So how many... What percent of our diet is made up of those 30 plants across the world? I feel like that depends on what part of the world you're in. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. What percent of our diet, like our 
eight servings of fruits and veggies a day. Yeah, you're confusing me. I guess yeah, I didn't question. word it right. I guess I didn't word it right. But tell us the answer. The answer is <laughs> I completely botched this question. It's all right. <laughs> but the answer is about ninety percent. So about ninety oh, yeah, percent of our diet is made up of these thirty species. And there's about 80,000 species we could eat out there, but we only use 30 for 90% of our diet. Okay, I might be splitting Which hairs is... here, but... Please, are... split the hairs, please. Okay, so are we including the grasses that cows eat or things mm. like that? Because I feel like that would change the numbers or change I, the That's species. true. I do not know the answer because to that. Because we wouldn't be able to eat beef or... Without plant, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even know how you came up with this question. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, this okay. question's next. <laughs> you guys both get So there's get a lot more, right. there are many more plants we should and could be eating. Correct, yeah. Saying. Correct, okay. yeah. That's, that's where yeah. Right. Eat your yeah. veggies. Yes. Alright, last question here, which is my favorite question of the quiz. <laughs> As always, the last question is always the best question. So, a story that was always very near and dear to my heart growing up. The Lorax. Okay. The Lorax tries to save what tree species? The truffula trees. The truffula trees. Nice. On the money. Obviously yeah. a fictional species, but it broke my heart as a kid to learn yeah. that truffula trees were only fictional. I thought they were real. And <laughs> <laughs> I thought somewhere in this world there was actually a truffula tree. Probably something similar. There's odd plant species out there. It's a good tree. If only. <laughs> oh, man. Lots of lessons we can learn from the Lorax, though. Mm -hmm. I was always yeah. a big Lorax fan. Don't cut them down to make needs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh. Jenna, do we have anything else for a Marade while we have her? Gosh. I feel like I have so much to learn. <laughs> what can I do? If I were going to be a better steward of the earth, if I were going to be a better gardener, what is something I can do as a normal person at home? Hmm. With... No plant knowledge. Don't let it discourage you. <laughs> uh, there is always more to learn in the plant world. And you got to start somewhere. So, I would say just keep reading. Talk to your plant friends. Uh, I thought you were going to say talk to your plants, which I heard is good too. I won't lie, I do it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it helps me. I'm not sure if it helps them, But... Uh, it is constantly a learning process and just trying to read and understand for yourself what you want to grow, what interests you in plants and just kind of follow that down the rabbit hole. And then as you grow and learn more, you can start to make decisions for your own garden or for your house plant, house plants. <laughs> uh, that can be helpful on a greater scale. So like the prairie lawn or a clover lawn or just being mindful about helping the plant you're trying to grow uh, but also how your, the choices you make in growing the plant in any way can affect like the environment or so on and so forth. So the example I'm thinking of is herbicide use. There's a lot of ways to control weeds, uh, and herbicide, using herbicides is not always necessary. Uh, so one of my favorite tried and true methods is using 
cardboard. Uh, without you take the tape off, you lay it down, layer to cover it with some mulch, and that will eventually smother out the weed, and the cardboard will break down, go back into the soil to kind of feed the soil, keep it healthy, but it will it will also kill that weed without using any chemicals. I so love that. it's kind of the best the best way to control a lot of weeds because you're benefiting the soil. You're not putting chemicals in. And it's just... It's a win-win. Yeah. yeah. So basically, once you put the cardboard down, you just cover it in mulch and you don't have to do anything again after that. Unless you start seeing weeds again. Okay. So it's uh, kind of like a yearly process. So as that cardboard breaks down or more seeds that you don't want uh, growing there, get dropped there, and they start growing, he just kind of layers. And just as, like, soil layers, like, within the Earth's crust, uh, it'll just start to build up and break down. So you just keep doing the cardboard mulch method. I love it. That's yeah, a good that's one. Awesome. I wonder how many people know about that, and hopefully it'll keep some people from using, using pesticides, yeah, yeah. herbicides and and help their soil while they're at yeah. it. So. And there's so many things like that uh, that you learn along the way. Like, I never knew that method until, like, an old gardener friend of mine mm -hmm. was like, I don't want to spend money on herbicides, yeah. so let's just put some cardboard <laughs> down. And it's a tried and true. Yeah, that's awesome. But you just got to keep reading into it and just seeing what alternatives you can find that work for you and the environment around awesome i love hearing all of your passion for plants so thank you for yes. explaining this all of your your job and everything that you're doing and everything that you're doing also for plants and different species that's really awesome we learned a lot i still could ask a million questions <laughs> but we appreciate you taking the time to be here today yeah thank you for having me anytime awesome if you ever have like a really cool success story and you want to talk to us about it let us know let us know oh, yeah for sure uh, I'm, someday i'm gonna try and get over there and Oh, yeah. take, take a look visitors? at your lab. I, oh, you yeah. Take, you yeah. take visitors? Yeah. That, oh, yeah. I'm not that I'm inviting myself, but I totally just invited myself. Like, <laughs> always invite yourself. should have done that first. So we at least yeah. would have had like a visual of how to interpret everything that yeah. she's saying. But. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? All, we, oh, at least for zoo employees, we have an open door policy. And eventually, we our public exhibit will be open for the oh. public to see. To awesome. get a better oh, awesome. idea. Got that to look forward to. But yeah, stop on by. Okay. I'm always happy to talk about plants for however long. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. Thanks for putting up with a couple dummies like us today. We appreciate <laughs> you bearing with us and teaching us. And guys, thank you to everyone for tuning in for another episode of Cincinnati Zoo Tales. Until next time. Have a great day.